all the time, all the time. You are good, you are good, all the time, all the time. You are good, you are good, all the time. And your love endures forever. You are good, all the time. You are good, you are good, all the time. And your love endures forever. You are good. You are good, you are good, you are good, you are good. It's good all the time, amen? Can you hear me? I can only hear out of one ear, so this is going to be fun. Praise the Lord, you can be seated. I feel like I really should call you all to the front. Look at all these precious seats. And nobody moves. That's all right, you don't have to. Good morning. I trust you all had a good Christmas. We haven't been together since Christmas Eve. It's good to be back together. I don't know about you, but my week has just been thrown off without that Wednesday night service. What day is it? Where am I supposed to be? Those, those anchors in your life that you get used to having and they're gone, it's a little more challenging. But I'm glad to be here with you this morning on one, two, three, one, two, three. Yeah, I mentioned it before service because we don't get to say that very often, do we? Today is the 31st and it's one, two, three, one, two, three, in case you didn't know. Now you know. <laughs> Praise God. Well, we are in the last week of our first portion of our series for this quarter, um, which has been about God's holiness and ours. It's been a little split up with the Christmas season and the Christmas program, um, but we're going to wrap up this series this morning and talking about being holy for a purpose. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the most intriguing figures from the World War II era Germany. His spiritual classic, The Cost of Discipleship, has continued to inspire and challenge following generations for its clear-cut call about absolute dedication. In his book, he talks about when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer and his twin sister Sabine were born on February 4, 1906 in Breslau, Germany, to a well-to-do and very influential family. At age 16... Dietrich entered the ministry and enrolled in the university in, or in 1923, and later he transferred to his father's school in Berlin. From the very beginning, he was a very distinguished student, publishing his, his first dissertation at just 21 years of age, and a second just a few short years later. However, everything changed for him in 1932. Does anyone know what happened? World War II, Hitler. Hitler swept to power, and Bonhoeffer entered the struggle that would define him. Having been raised a good Lutheran and a patriotic German, he was unwilling to stand by and allow Hitler's anti-Semitic policies to go unchallenged. He abandoned the state-sponsored Lutheran school for the dissent confessing church and even ran an illegal seminary for a time. 
Influential friends from America helped him obtain an appointment at the Faculty of Union Theological Seminary in 1939. He arrived here in the United States on June 12th, but departed back to Germany on July 25th because he could not ignore the dire situation facing his beloved homeland. To avoid military service, Bonhoeffer became a courier in the German intelligence service, which was the nerve center of, of my typo. <laughs> it was the nerve center for the German resistance. Bonhoeffer, the once staunch pacifist and patriot, worked to see the Fuhrer assassinated. Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo on April 5, 1943, and he was sent to a military prison. It was six months before he even saw a warrant for his arrest. And after another failed attempt on Hitler's life, the infamous Operation Valkyrie, Bonhoeffer was transferred to Buchenwald in February 1945. On April 1st, prisoners could hear the report of Allied artillery. Two days later, Bonhoeffer was transported to the extermination camp of Flossenburg, where he was finally tried and sentenced to death by hanging the very next morning. Fellow prisoner and survivor Payne Best said of Bonhoeffer, he was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. Theologian, Pastor, spy, assassin, martyr. Perhaps it's a bit of a stretch to call him a modern-day Daniel, but Bonhoeffer's tragically shortened life still stands today as a powerful witness of total dedication to a holy calling, a reminder to us that the ultimate cost of discipleship is laying down your life. Long before Hitler... Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylonia. He conquered Judah, destroying Jerusalem in 586 BC. Some of the inhabitants of Judah were taken back to Babylon as captives, including a number of children, children of royal and noble families, to be integrated into the Babylonian society. Among these taken were four boys named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's impossible for us today to really understand the trauma that these boys went through. Daniel and his three friends were just about the age of 14 or 15 years old when they were ripped from their families, taken from their homeland into a foreign culture, and they were cut off with all contact with family and friends in their homeland. They were forcibly indoctrinated into the Babylonian way of life, even to the point of losing their given names. You see, all four of these Hebrew names had meanings connected to faith in God. But upon arrival to Babylon, their names were changed. And Daniel 1.7 tells us that the chief official of Babylon, which is up here as the prince of the eunuchs, gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar. Man, I cannot talk today. Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. It's interesting to me that when we talk of these names, typically we say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We talk about the names that were given to them by the Babylonians. But if we look at the names given to them through their Hebrew language, 
I'm going to give you a teaser this morning. Originally, I was going to tell you what those names mean, but I would like to challenge you to go look up those names and look up their names and then look at the testimony of their life and you can see exactly why their names fit who they were in the situations that they lived. But see, when they were taken into Babylon, they were, their names were stripped of them and they were doing this intentionally because they wanted these boys to forget their God. They wanted to forget their homeland. They wanted them to forget the traditions of their homeland, the religion of their homeland. And they wanted them to conform, to become like the Babylonians. And the names that they gave them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are names that go with their gods. Even Daniel's name was changed because they wanted to disassociate from the true God to their gods. And so they changed that. After this study, I don't think I'll ever look at the names in the Bible the same as we've often said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Veggie Tales. <laughs> These young men were forced to watch as Nebuchadnezzar came parading, parading home. He stormed the temple and he brought back precious, precious treasures. And these boys had to watch and they had to observe as their, their homeland was destroyed. You see, on top of all of that was the constant reminder of the wealth and the power of the Babylons, Babylonians. Yet somehow, somehow in the midst of all of this, these four young men found a way to resist. They resisted the allure of the power of the king and the palace and the privilege. And somehow they held on to and were able to retain their distinctive Jewish identity. Surely their actions seemed to be feeble, feeble gestures, but ultimately they portrayed hearts that were steadfast committed. They were committed and there was no changing their minds. They were committed not to a church or to an organization or to a religion, but they were committed and they were separated to God himself. And that's how they could go into the Babylonian, not just the culture, not just the city, but into the palace and they could hang on to their Jewish identity. But over time, the pressure to conform got stronger and stronger, and the expectations became more and more challenging to navigate for them. And then the threats, the threats to comply became even more drastic for them. And Nebuchadnezzar, he, he came up with this really massive image. Ten feet tall, I think it was. A golden image. Can you imagine a ten-foot if you go from here to um, about where all these decorations are, that's about 12 feet. So that kind of gives you uh, something to see here. I don't know if we can help that ringing. Am I doing something wrong, Chris? Okay. Um, but you can see there that that's pretty tall, a lot taller than me, probably almost twice my height. Um, and he created this golden image, and he said, we're all going to bow to this. It was really, we're not really sure, like, what the image was, we're just told it was an image. Some people speculate that he did um, a statue of himself and he created this golden image that he wanted people to bow down to. We don't know what it was, but we know that it was born out of his pride. It was a monument to himself. And to bow down to the image was then equivalent to worshiping Nebuchadnezzar as a god. And essentially, that's what he was after. And so these boys knew that they could not bow 
to this idol because of the Ten Commandments. It was in their hearts, and they knew that they could not bow. But if they didn't bow, they knew that they were going to risk a certain death because there was a very vivid, fiery furnace that was set aside for people who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Now, there's two important things that are really easy to overlook in this story. The first thing is that it was quite possible that those Hebrew boys could have gotten away with not bowing because of their place in the palace. It's quite possible they could have just done their thing and King Nebuchadnezzar never would have known. But how did he know? He knew because of those Chaldean tattletales who were watching those Jews. They were watching those boys that were being brought up in the palace. And they looked and they thought, you know what? I really don't like these guys. I don't like those boys. And their jealousy and maybe even some racism crept in. Because in Daniel 3.12, it tells us that they were like, oh, king, oh, king, we have something to tell you. You know, there's those certain Jews, those boys that you brought in. Um, they're not bowing down. They're not doing what you asked them to do. And so they pointed the king in the direction of those Hebrew boys. And then the other thing is, like, when we look at these Hebrew boys, it wasn't like they were oblivious to these tattletales, to the animosity that was occurring. They knew they didn't like them. They knew there was animosity, but they didn't cower. They still stood their ground. They still stood in their faith. And more important for us is to look at that and how they took a public stand. They had been preparing for that moment from the very first day that they arrived at Babylon. You know, when, when we think of Daniel, we used to do the Daniel fast every um, January. And I know this year we're going to go in a completely different direction, which I'm very excited about. We'll talk about that later. But the Daniel fast, anybody done it? A few, a few of us have done that. We don't really know exactly why or maybe I'm just missing it, why they refused to eat the meat and to eat the meal in the palace. It's not exactly clear in the scriptures. We can look at it and we can think about it, and there really wasn't anything that prohibited them from doing so in their Jewish dietary laws, um, or that the, they were strictly vegetarian. We don't see that in there. And maybe just simply for those Hebrew boys that they realize that if we eat this food, then we're saying that we approve, that we just can't be that friendly with the king. It was just unacceptable behavior to them. We don't really know exactly what it was. It could have been that the Babylonians had made a meat offering to their gods and poured out the drink offerings to their gods. And so these boys said, we're not going to participate. We don't really know if the association was tainted. We don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us but we know that their dedication to this minor thing, like, I don't think that the Daniel fast is minor because um, I like to eat meat. <laughs> Probably a little too much. My doctor keeps telling me I need to stop. Um, but it seems like a minor thing when we think of the massive things that we could do. When I was studying this and I was thinking about this, the thing that kept coming back to me over and over again was that phrase about laying down your life laying down your life. 
And I think that sometimes for us, we look at it and we're looking for some grand gesture that we can show. But when it comes to the everyday, we just don't care. We don't take the same amount of stock in the little choices, in the things that we do. We disregard them. And I think that it's important for us to remember why we do what we do, and that we're not doing it for some grand thing. This whole series has been about God's holiness and ours. Why do we practice a lifestyle of holiness? Why? Are we doing it because it's a requirement so I can be involved in X, Y, Z? Am I doing it because this is my social club and this is how I can fit in with people? Or am I doing it as these boys, these young men did, where they did it out of personal conviction? They did it because of a relationship with God. A relationship with God that said, you know what? This does not matter. What matters most to me is what my God thinks of me. It doesn't matter to me what this king can offer me. It doesn't matter to me that this might cost me my life. What matters most is my God. You know, going through this story and looking at at how this all transpires and when these boys are brought before King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down before this image, and they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't do it, even though they knew they were facing certain death. You know, when we look at this and we read the, ne- the account of Nebuchadnezzar, we should give him his due. You know, even though he was really angry because his pride was hurt, because these men, these boys would not bow down, he gave them an opportunity to speak for themselves. He gave them a second chance, he thought, to obey his command. But the king scoffed. In Daniel 3, 14 through 15, It says, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? You see, Nebuchadnezzar imagined himself as an all-powerful God. But in fact, there's only one true, living, powerful God. One easily overlooked sub-theme in the stories of Daniel and his friends is a subtle critique of the insanity of godless human power. Over the stories related in Daniel 2 through 4, we can read about Nebuchadnezzar and how he slowly came unhinged, eventually falling into complete madness. If you haven't read it in some time, I would encourage you to read through the book of Daniel. Even just the first few chapters are so enlightening Within one chapter, we read about Nebuchadnezzar styling himself as a sculptor, an orchestral arranger, a pyrotechnic engineer. It's difficult to imagine any image that was that tall 
that wouldn't look comical being a replica of a person. I didn't think about this until it was in this lesson, but reading the descriptions about how Daniel wrote all this, I think he did it intentionally because he wanted the audience to laugh at it, to see the insanity of the decisions of Nebuchadnezzar and what he was asking of these men. The glory of Babylon was reduced to nothing but a sideshow. And if Nebuchadnezzar did not try to recreate the image, perhaps, of his dream in the previous chapters, what would have been? We don't know, because we see his failed attempts. Why should we, like these Hebrew boys, worship God alone? Why should we do it? To be obedient and love God? Amen. God alone can help us. Roman, were you going to say something? A what? A personal relationship with God. You see, he alone is worthy. Only he alone is truly worthy of our worship. Nobody else can measure up to the awesomeness of who God is. Definitely none of our senators or our celebrities. There's nobody who measures up like God measures up. And whether we feel like it or we don't feel like it, he's worthy. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our worship. And he's not just looking for the praise and worship that we do corporately together here in church. He's looking for praise and worship in our everyday life, in everything that we do. You see, like the Hebrews, you and I are bombarded daily with messages about the might and the glory. I'm not sure about might right now of our nation. Our political party. Our economy. They demand from us loyal and self-sacrifice, complete trust in the righteousness of their causes, total faith in their ability to deliver and all that they promise, but all the promises are lies. None of it comes to fruition. Most important, when we look at Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we see that they did not need to deliberate. They didn't need to take a side hustle and determine what they were going to do. It was immediate, and they did it without care, the scripture says. That means they didn't even think twice. They didn't even address the king as the king. They just got right down to it. And in Daniel 3, 17 through 18, it says, If it's so... If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You see, no one had ever faced this situation or this circumstance before, and these young men fully recognized that God may choose not to deliver them. Either way, God can or he can't. He will or he won't. I have to wonder if the family that they left 
behind when the Babylonians took over came to their mind when they considered it and said, he may deliver us or he may not. We may end up like them. But no matter what, doesn't change what I will do because of my personal conviction that God can and that I will obey him. The Hebrews' determination to live for God was never predicated on a favorable outcome. Yet how many times do we find ourselves upset with God because life just isn't going the way that we scripted it to go? Things just aren't happening the way that I thought that they should happen. And immediately we begin to pull back and we begin to pull away. And I don't even know, is there a God? I don't even know if he cares about me. And today, I speak against all of that in the name of Jesus and tell you that's a lie from the enemy. God is with you and he loves you, even in the hard times and not just in the times of blessing. He wants to bless your life with much more than riches and materialistic things. He wants to be with you in the moments that don't make sense. He wants to carry you through those moments And you say, oh, if he would just take it away, then you would be weak and spineless. You would have no muscle because without resistance, muscle does not form. Just as the same way in our life, we have to decide and we have to determine who God is. Why am I serving him? Am I serving him because it's what my family does? Am I here because it's just what we do on a Sunday morning? Or am I here because I genuinely love him? Because I need him. Sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in the traditions of church. Every year, it gets easier and easier. And it just becomes a thing that we do. A thing that we do. But this morning, I want to challenge you to think about this a little bit more. Why are you here? Are you here so that people will think good of you? Are you here so that someone might not point out the fact that you're not? Or are you here because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is here? Are you here because you need to be with brothers and sisters of like precious faith who can encourage you and build you up and lift you up? You see, cake, cake, church is not the cake. Church is the frosting on the cake. The cake is made every day outside of this building. And yet sometimes all we're taking is what we get here. And then things start getting thrown at us, and we're like, oh, okay, that's not so bad. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, those are good thoughts. Those are good people. That sounds like a good idea. And before we know it, we're being pulled into the mindsets of Babylon, to the ideas and the philosophy of Babylon, wandering farther and farther from the truth, farther and farther from who God is. You see, those Babylonian boys were not Babylonian boys. They were Hebrew boys in a Babylonian culture. You and I today are living in a Babylonian culture. And sometimes as parents, I think we all can be there where we're a little bit afraid and we're a little bit hesitant. 
What's going to happen to these boys? Well, I look at Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, and I say, there's hope for your children, Melissa. There's hope in this world because they can stand up and rise up just like these Hebrew boys did. It does not happen by accident. We don't stumble into that kind of faith. It's built line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. It's not a lot that we're always heaping on, but little by little by little. And then whatever comes, we can stand and we can face it. But the question is, will we stand and will we face it with him as our Lord? We can call him Lord, but the moment we tell him no, he is not Lord of our life. Yes, Lord, is the only thing that we truly can say and for him to remain Lord of our life. What is he speaking to you this morning? I am so far off my notes, but I feel the Holy Ghost here. And even as I have struggled this morning, I feel that the Lord wants to talk to each one of us. And he wants us to draw a line. And what better time than as we're wrapping up a year and we're starting fresh. So many people like to look at New Year's as an opportunity for a fresh start. But you see, God doesn't make you wait until the next year. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. And it's a new day. And it's a time for each one of us to make a determination, a determination that God, no matter what comes my way, no matter what doesn't work out, no matter what's said of me, let it be said that she trusted in God. Let it be said that she submitted to God. It's not about popularity, it's not about fame, it's not about being the nicest person in the room. It's not even about being the best person or the holiest person. Our holiness doesn't come for us. Our holiness doesn't give us salvation. Our salvation gives us holiness. Our salvation transforms us. <clears throat> in Jesus' name. Our holiness transforms us. We can't give up on that. We can't try to obtain it. Because there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that you can say that can ever pay the price that Jesus paid for you. Because he's in the transforming business, he paid it all. He gave it all with his blood. He gave it all with his sacrifice. He didn't say, hey, Amy, you do this, 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 and this, and then I'll give you salvation. He didn't say, April, here's the book. Here's what I want you to do. When you meet those, come see me. No, he paid it all, and he said, come to me. Come to me as you are. And as you come to me as you are, I'm going to change you into a new creature into a new person. And that's what holiness is all about. It's about transforming us and changing us. But too many times we want to look at holiness and say, is it really required? Is it necessary that I'm different? Why can't I eat the king's meat? 
Why? Because you are called. You are a peculiar people. You are a holy nation. And there are people who need to see Jesus through you without ever hearing a word from your mouth. And that is seen in the life that you live, in the holiness that he gives. I can't give you holiness. Only God can do it. But I have to make a choice. A choice that says, no matter what you choose, I've already settled this. It's a personal conviction of mine because my God has said so. Because my God has changed me. The problem is we have too many people sitting in church who have changed themselves and don't leave room for God. That's not what God is asking of us. That's not what he wants of us. He wants to do it. It's through his power and his transforming spirit that his work is accomplished. What if we would just lay down our life? What if we would just lay it all down and say, okay, Lord, what do you want? What do you want? Because you see those three Hebrew boys did that and they faced the furnace. But you see, I really wanted to create this image so I'm going to try and paint it with words. It's pretty easy to see. Those three boys are taken into the furnace, and the king's watching, and he's looking, and he sees the fourth man in the fire. And it really jumped out to me in the scriptures when he said, he didn't say, is that a God? That's the God. He recognized and he saw it for himself. Not because those boys said anything, but because they walked their faith all the way into the fire and God showed up in the fire. Some of you are going through the fire right now and all I can say is don't stop. Keep going because people are watching and people are looking and they're seeing and they're wondering how how is he going through that and still standing? How is she still rejoicing and worshiping her God, walking through what she's been through? How is this possible? It's possible because God does the transforming. He does the changing. I don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You can just let that go and just let God be God. And then people begin to see. I always tell the young people in class, Always be a witness. If necessary, use words. Because people can try and make you be quiet, but your life will always speak for itself. When you're in the heat of the moment, how do you respond? Sometimes it's great, and I'm full of the Holy Ghost. And other times, I'm a little full of me. And I have to go repent. And that's okay, because we're human. But you see, the most incredible thing about walking with Jesus is that the more we walk with him, the less of us that gets in the way. And then if there's a little bit of me get in the way, then I realize I need to walk a little closer to Jesus. Because people are watching. And people are looking. And it isn't that they need to see you. 
or how fantastic you are or how great I am, it's because they need to see Jesus. Will you let your life more than your words speak for him? Stand with me this morning. A life based on the principles of the word of God preaches that word wherever it goes. Whether you're in the church building, the boardroom, the garage, the hospital, the grocery store, the belt line. Please let Jesus show up on the belt line. Wherever you are, what are you preaching? How are you responding? Are you responding just like the Babylonians? Or is there something deeper inside of you that's swelling up? Is the fruit of the Spirit active in your heart? As we wrap this up this morning, there's a question. I'd like you to close your eyes as we focus a little better on ourselves with our eyes closed. Think on this question. And answer it to yourself honestly. If an unsaved acquaintance, coworker, neighbor, never asked you about anything religious, but carefully observed your life, would that realization encourage you or sober you? If an unsaved acquaintance never asked you anything religious but carefully observed your life, would that encourage you or sober you? It is my prayer that it would encourage you, but I know for some of you it sobers you this morning. And as we wrap up today's lesson, I would invite you We have a few minutes before children have to be picked up from their class. And I know we typically don't go into an altar call at this time. But even if you stay right there in your pew and you take the answer to that question before the Lord and you ask him to help you, ask him to help you to find the personal conviction, not pastor's conviction, not the bylaws of Calvary Gospel Church or the articles of faith for the UPCI, but what is your personal conviction and how is it showing up every day in the life that you live? Let's close this lesson together in prayer right now. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of salvation that you have given to me, that you have given to us. Lord, I thank you so much for loving us. I thank you for filling us with your spirit, your transforming spirit. And God, I thank you that your your spirit is at work here this morning. And God, you are trying to get into our hearts and into our minds, and you are trying to challenge our thinking. 
And God, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand that it is you who gives us the power and the strength. It is through your power, through your grace, and by your mercy that we are able to live every day. And God, we're not always going to get it right, but thank you that we can come to you no matter what we do, and we can say, Lord, here I am. Help me again. I thank you, God, that each one of us has an opportunity to participate in your mission. And your mission is to share the gospel with the whole world. And every life that is represented, every soul in this building today or maybe they're watching online God I know that you want to use them and invite them into this mission and God I pray today that you would help each one of us God to be reflective and to consider what it is that you desire to do God not because we have anything of ourselves to offer people but because we have you to give to people and God I pray Lord that you would help each one of us to do just that that we would surrender and lay down our life so that you can shine through us that others can see you through us, God. Let us be witnesses for you, God, no matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, no matter what fire, no matter what storm, God, that you would show up in everything and that people would see you and say, I need you. I need that. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. If you have children, you can pick them up. Um, If you do not have your devotional book. We do have a few of these left. You can see an usher at the kiosk. I do encourage you to pick one of these up and to use it because the idea is to carry today's lesson into the week to grow together.